Welcome to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative, a podcast that challenges what it means to be a high performer. Here are your hosts, Lauren Williams and Rob Kalvaroski. Welcome to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, Eric Kusin joins the show to talk about acceptance, belonging, and how we all struggle in life. We also talk a little bit about the classifications for mental health and how we all struggle and we're all here together to support each other. I wanted to make an announcement that Lauren and I are launching a high impact leadership course called the Leadership Launchpad Project Program. It's a 12 week program where we're going to dive into the nuts and bolts around leadership, around mindset, and really put you guys out into the world as a high impact leader. It comes with some online modules. It comes with coaching sessions from both Lauren and I, some group coaching aspects. And then also it's going to help you build connections within other leaders that are joining us in the program. So it's going to be an awesome program. To check out the details for that, go to highperformancenarrative.com slash leadership. That's highperformancenarrative.com slash leadership. You can register there. The program's going to be starting in June, so I really hope that you join us there. It's going to be an awesome time, and we're going to learn a ton about leadership. Coming off that, if you'd like a a group discount or if you'd like to run it privately at your company, just send me an email, rob at highperformancenarrative.com. We do offer that as a potential opportunity, so if you're putting multiple people into the class or you want to run a private one for just a group at your site, we're definitely available for that. So send me an email there, rob at highperformancenarrative.com, and we'll jump on the phone to talk about it. Everyone, this is a great interview. Thanks for listening. And here's the interview with Eric Kusin. We are live. Welcome back to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative. I'm Rob Kalvaroski, and as always, we have our in-house high-performance coach, and former Wisconsin Badger, Lauren Williams. Lauren, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. And, and you know, we start off this show typically with a mental health moment for me. And one thing that I had therapy yesterday, and one thing that came out to me that was actually pretty revelationary, if that's a word, <laughs> um, was that the achievement for me was more about acceptance than it was about like this la- this fear of failure or the self-worth thing. It was more about feeling like you have somewhere you belong. And mm-hmm. that coming out yesterday was, I mean, for me, it was, I'd never seen the world that way before. And even my therapist was like, holy crap, like this is new. So I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think that's, I mean, that's huge and congrats for making it to there because we all know that like that kind of stuff is not easy to get to. And you've definitely been on a good, good and bendy road trying to get there, but no, that's amazing. And I think it's more, more common than you'd think too, to see that, that we, we tie these external achievements that we search for our entire lives, compete for, train for whatever, study for even, um, not for the reward itself, but for the idea that if you're able to get it, that it means that, you know, you are deserving of some level of acceptance from whether it's parents, peers, 
the world as a whole. Um, that's definitely interesting and it impacts so many of us, I think. Yeah. And, and I mean, that search for belonging is huge and, and mm -hmm. we have a special guest. We have Eric Kusen with us today and it's kind of interesting, Eric, like you talk about the same here movement and it's very much aligned with that feeling of belonging and acceptance in the mental health aspect of just like, we all suffer. Like, do you want to, before we get into the nuts and bolts of you, like, do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. It's interesting when you, when you were bringing that up and your experience in therapy and what came up, I mean, I didn't want to chime in because you guys co-host the show. And so it was, it was your, your, uh, you know, your platform to go with, but, but interestingly enough, what it made me think of is talking about hockey actually. So we're doing a program right now with the Chicago Wolves, um, the, the AHL team. I, I'd spent some time in Chicago when, when the sky was starting the WNBA team. And so we got to know some of the folks over with the Wolves. And so they started rolling out this program where from a social media perspective, the campaign is this sign that you hold up and it says, my same here challenge is, and then you write in the challenge and then underneath it is I thrive by, right? So mm -hmm. we're trying to get people to think in terms of challenges they face and how they overcome them, which in, in the context of a same here mindset is it's not about disorders. It's not about labels. It's not about this thing called mental illness. It's about what we're facing in life, right? And here's the serendipity of what you just said, uh, Rob, which I think you'll find fascinating is one of the first submissions that came through was from this guy probably in his upper 50s, grizzled looking guy. His, his profile says that he's a whiskey drinker and a cigar smoker, you know, and, and you'd never expect him to open up and be vulnerable. And his sign said, my senior challenge is belonging. Okay. And that commonality of being vulnerable in that way to where you can talk about think about how many different places we could all have felt like we haven't belonged in our lives, whether it was going back to childhood and being a kid. And there was a group of friends that were closer friends with one another than you felt like you were. So you didn't feel like you fully belonged or you go to college and you make new friends, but in making new friends, they're all closer with one another. And you're the person who's coming in from out of state or right. Like the, and then you go to the office and there's the click in the office and you get your first job. And even though you're the new person and they like having you, you still, you haven't been on the job as long as them. Right. So like there's so many aspects of how belonging, even if in the context of a bigger picture, you feel like you belong, there's smaller subsets of belonging that I, I don't think there's a human on this earth that can't relate to that. Right. So, you know, Yes, we'll dive deeper out when you ask questions, but I think in the in the grand scheme of challenges we face, the idea of belonging is something that I think applies to probably every person on this planet. And then when you get the visuals of people that you're like, I would never expect that person to open up in that way, it, it hits home even more. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and it's funny, right? Like imposter syndrome. Like I think the stats say like 70% of people suffer with imposter syndrome. And I mean, it's, it's probably everybody, but, but it's like, there is some aspect, right? Where it's what you're touching on and what I've kind of come to thinking about basically in the last 24 hours is like a lot of my accomplishments were focused at this point of proving that I belonged. And like, you can prove it when you put stats on the stat sheet, you can prove it when you put like A's in the classroom, you can prove it when you put, you know, production on the board at work. 
And I think like that's something that a lot of people are going to relate to is like you feel like you're an imposter until you prove it and then you're quote unquote accepted. And consider, you know, even the term belonging, the important reason why you guys have long form format of a podcast here is so you could dive deeper into the topics. The term belonging might resonate with some people. And then for other people, it might be proving your worth, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So like what you just, what you were just sharing with me there, right? Like, let's say you get hired as the CEO of an organization, right? You, you're at the top of your career and you just got this great job. Well, now you're going from an organization where everyone knew you, respected you, trusted you, thought highly of you. And yes, your resume speaks for itself, but now you come on site to this new location and now you have to prove that you're as good as what your resume says it was, because even though people say that they vetted you out, proof is in the pudding, right? So that's another form of belonging that I think when we when we think of the word belonging, back to kind of the examples I was given earlier, we think of like the kid that's left out or not picked a gym class or what have you. But there's so many other angles of belonging. I think that that's why your 70% stat, like when I hear stats like that, Rob, it's, and I, I know you know I'm not being respect, disrespectful to you. I'm, I'm speaking more generally to statistics is we, we get these like, oh, well, a person picked a 7 out of 10 on a, on a scale or something like that. At the end of the day, when you think about basic human emotions, there's so many things that are in common that I think we sometimes we, we try to put things in buckets and those buckets don't exist. Yeah, and I mean, there's so much to talk about there. But Lauren, maybe maybe you can touch on this a little bit. Like, I know I know we've covered it in in terms of the hierarchy of needs, but how much is like where where is a need of acceptance and belonging kind of fit for people? I mean, I would argue for it that it's it's an essential piece. It's one of the first ones that at, at least at some point you have to feel um, because we are social beings. You know, we, we want to gather in groups. We want to feel a part of a group because, you know, way back when that was safety to us, like physical safety, not psych safety, physical safety was groups. So part of that definitely still you know, is, is with us in a sense, but we no longer need it for physical safety, but we still crave that group. So when we don't have that sense of belonging, that group that we feel a part of, then we start to feel that emotional dissonance caused by that. Well, why am I not? Why am I different than other people? Um, what makes me this individual who is ostracized? And, and from that, we start to experience all these other emotions that at the end of the day, get in the way of our ability to deal with and handle everyday life issues as they arise properly. So, I mean, I'm sure it's, you have your, your basic needs for food, water, all that good stuff, a safe place to live. And then you can start to get into the emotional stuff in that second and third tier. But I mean, I think it's, in terms of the hierarchy of needs, it, it depends. It can be one of the first things that people need. It can be um, extremely critical for others. While, you know what, other people can get to the top and then start saying like, okay, wow, I'm starting to notice these emotions that are getting in my way. I'm going to address this now. But it's different for everybody, really. Yeah, I love that. And, and I think, you know, it kind of broaches on this topic of stigma. And I know like Mm -hmm. Eric has some pretty interesting thoughts on stigma, uh, at least from a mental health perspective. Like, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Eric? Yeah. You know, the, so 
the term stigma never really resonated with me in a way that it shook me to, um, you know, pay attention to mental health back when I thought I was this person who was unaffected by life. Right. Because affected, you know, in, in the, in the way that we all grew up was genetically, you have this disorder and something is wrong with you, right? You have bipolar, you have schizophrenia, you have depression. And then, you know, the whole trauma informed, you know, revolution started happening and people started talking about that. And well, if that's the case then who hasn't been through it, right. And you, you start to look more broadly at all of us who've been through it. And so the fact that the term stigma, and maybe this is, you know, looking back on it, this is why I didn't engage with mental health at the time, which I think is, you know, now I'm using myself as a example of a larger audience, meaning society, 7 billion people, but, um, is is if you internalize the word stigma, it means if, if there's a group of people saying stop, stomp, break, erase the stigma, they're pointing the finger at another group of people. There's no other way to define that you know campaign other than that because stop the stigma, the term stigma means there's a group of people forming opinions and judgments and making unfair decisions about another group of people. So stigma doesn't happen from a tree causing other people's stigma. It doesn't happen from an animal causing people's stigma. It happens from people causing other people's stigma. So by virtue of the campaign and the word itself, what we're doing is we're separating people into buckets, the people we need to protect, and then the people who are forming those opinions and judgments about those people we need to protect. And you could, you know, back to classification systems that we were talking about before, how you put people into different buckets. We could slice nice people into, you know, the three of us are white people. Well, you don't have hair, Rob, and I have hair and you have longer hair, Lauren, right? So even though we're three white people, we're in three different, like think about how many different ways you can slice people into buckets, right? And so with respect to mental health, it's like, it's a topic that, at least in my opinion, we need people coming together more than ever before and yet we have campaigns that point out our differences <laughs> so so you know our whole philosophy is let's show each other what the similarities are that we all have that brings us together and makes us want to work on it and if if i've ever had any pushback looking at it it's come from the group that's in the one in five right and 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 so what do i mean by that first off so that i, I disarm myself here I'm someone who would be considered in that one in five category because I have chronic PTSD, right? And so within the one in five category, when people hear what we're saying, that it's really a topic for five and five, and it's not about stopping a stigma, it's about saying here that we all face challenges. I often get, you know, I shouldn't say I often get, the, the pieces of feedback that I've gotten from people who are upset at looking at it that way are the people who live in the one in five category who say, that's not fair. I've been through more than that group that you're including in there to which my answer is great we can have a party in our own group by ourselves and we can be the ones who are victimized more than anyone else guess what the rest of society is not coming along with us if that's the way we continue our messages right so you can't have it both ways you can't say we're more sick than everyone else feel bad for us and at the same time be like come along with us and be a part of this process because once you split people up it's very hard to bring people back together and i think that the the the, the struggle that we're having as a society right now is even as we talk about trauma informed the, the not everyone's educated in that way so so you see campaigns like 
bells let's talk or you know you know these just talk campaigns hashtag talk mental health well if there's no context to what we're asking people to talk about the conventional wisdom is we're asking people to talk about their disorder during that time this is the day or the week where we won't judge you and you can talk about what the difficulties are that you face having that disorder Again, I don't think that brings us together. I think that furthers the divide. It's those people who are letting talk during that time. We'll sit back and listen to them. And it, it, I think the way we bring people together is to say, this is what I've been through. I've been through divorce. I've been through breakups. I've been through job losses. I've been through bullying. That is something that's a common aspect, kind of what you were describing at the beginning, Rob, with belonging that ties us together way more than disorder labels ever will. Absolutely. And it's something, you know, Lauren, you, maybe you can touch on this a little bit, but we had Liv Massey on a few weeks ago and she was talking about this new aspect, which is basically what you're saying, right? Is like, and she used the example of anxiety and she said, like, it's on a spectrum. Like you, some days you have less anxiety. Some days, if you're like, you know, playing in the Super Bowl or something, you have lots of anxiety. Like it just depends on where you are and how you are. But Right now, like a lot of the classifications that are used in psychiatry are very much like this is the box of what anxiety disorder is. Like, Lauren, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like, how does the classification work? Uh, yeah, um, I have my own gripes with this as well, as I've talked about before, right? And I love the idea of like, you're trying to slice and dice all these people into boxes. And as much as we try in like the counseling profession and in psychiatry to put people into boxes, we just simply can't cover the wealth of experience that exists within a human being on a piece of paper. We can try to cover what we consider to be the most essential categories i.e. how it shows up in your everyday life, the cognitive load of whatever your symptom is that you're experiencing to try and say, okay, well, now this is interfering with your everyday life, so it's pretty severe, or it's not interfering with your everyday life, so it's less severe. And we try to categorize people. Um, and we have to look at it from the standpoint too of like people have insurance to deal with. Insurance has to be able to quantify this. But that being said... I don't love it, right? Because we're missing so much of that human experience that lies within, you know, or with out of the boundaries that exist on that piece of paper, right? Um, somebody like me who does coaching like this for a living, um, I can confidently say that I live with certain levels of anxiety, but I'm also well-versed in handling them and understanding how to moderate them on a daily basis. So whereas the levels of anxiety that I experience are okay for me and I can handle them for somebody else, for it's a completely different story. <laughs> well, no, 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 not necessarily for you, but like, it, it's true though, right? So like my level of anxiety is very different than somebody else's and the way that it presents in me is very different than somebody else. But that doesn't mean that either one of us is less allowed to say that we struggle with anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the issues that we're seeing. Um, and, and kind of in that example that you gave earlier, Eric, where the people that are, you know, the one in five with diagnosed clinical are really struggling with this kind of see that pushback on like, well, they're not struggling as much as I did. Well, just because they're not showing it the same way that you are 
doesn't mean that they're not struggling just as much and that their experience doesn't also deserve to be validated in that way. And I think as a profession, we're starting to move towards that to look at it and say like, okay, maybe you're, you're somewhere on that scale that's less severe than somebody else, but tell me what you're feeling. Let's understand it so that we can help you figure out a way to manage it in the best possible way for you regardless of where you are on that scale. And mm-hmm. I think that's where coaching comes in a lot as well, too. No question. And, and you know, let's use like a real life scenario of, of what you're describing, which is, you know, DSM-5 criteria, right? Like, so what upset me so much when looking at these, how you get put into that bucket of a disorder is you need to have these five symptoms of this list of 20 for two weeks or more, Right. Who made that line in the sand that that's what it is, right? So now take a step and I'll even, you know, I think you're right. Our industry is moving in the right direction, but then even in moving that right direction, you you look at something like this trauma informed and these ACE scores, right? Adverse childhood experiences. And then even within the ACE scores, I think that we're being very limiting because, you know, oh, well, if you lost a loved one at a young age, right? And so that's like one of the categories that are in there. But I think of a kid, like if, if, if Lauren, let's say, I don't know if you have a sister, but let's say you had a sister who was a twin sister and you guys are walking down the street. One of you turns left, one of you turns right. And you happen to be walking down the street where a car at, you're five years old walking with your mom and the car loses control and jumps up on the curb. It doesn't hit you. It doesn't even crash into one of the poles. It just jumps up on the curve. Now in your mind, you, every time you walk out on the street, even though your sister walked down the other side and is your twin sister, she never saw that car. So the idea never entered her mind. And now every time a car just rides by you, even if that car doesn't jump off the curve again, you're thinking, oh my God, the car can jump off the curb. I'm scared of that. I'm afraid to walk out in the street again. Maybe it only happens when I go with my mom. And if I go myself, I'm fine, right? Our brain creates all these scenarios And back to your point of comparisons, that's the dangerous piece when we put people in categories and we say, well, this person's been through more. Like when people hear my story of my trauma history, they're like, well, Eric, you you know, where you ended up in bed for that two and a half year period, it's because you went through so much. And I say, possibly, but I I can't compare my experience to anyone else because I only know what I've lived through. And I'm not going to take away validation from someone else who's been through the example that I just gave or went through terrible turbulence on a plane and feared flying. And even though their parents took them on a great thing, which is vacations all the time that you're supposed to be excited about, their brain was constantly spinning of this plane that I'm on could go down at any time, go down anytime that creates tension in the nervous system and changes neurobiological changes that are similar in many ways to seeing a actual traumatic event take place in front of us, right? So for us to compare is not fair. And I think that that the quicker we get away from, I, I agree with you for insurance purposes and stuff like that. Right now, I don't know that we have a better system. Um, hopefully we get to the point where you're just not questioned on how you feel and you could just get help, but that'd be a nice place <laughs> eventually. Maybe that's utopian. Um, but but outside of you know the the criteria for insurance coverage, You'd like it to be that we're just we're just validating each other based on how we feel, and we look at our feelings and emotions swimming up and down on an everyday basis. And I'll, I'll add, a, I, my brain could go on forever about this because I love this topic. But like, take your average day, right? Like, so Rob was just talking about belonging. So let's say Rob, you know, um, 
you guys did great numbers on a podcast. He just got his new dog that he's all excited about, right? He's, uh, you know, things are going well at home. Like all these things are going well, but he recognizes in therapy that he doesn't feel like he belongs. So even though these like six other aspects of his life are all going well, this realization that he doesn't feel like he belongs in some areas of life now hover over the rest of them. And if you asked him how he's doing that day, he would say, eh, all right, even though those other six things are going great, right? Yeah. So it's the human emotions are so fascinating that way about how much they fluctuate up and down and how one piece of many pieces within our lives can be something that colors the rest of how we're feeling. And so to just put people in these binary and these these solid buckets, I think we're, we're really limiting the human experience that way. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's incredibly wild, right? And I think like, and that's something that Lauren talks to me about a lot is recognizing those things and banking those wins, right? And like the first two weeks I had the dog was incredible. Like we're on week three now and like the suicide well, ideation is creeping back in and like I had a rough weekend and it's like, it's like really difficult to, and I think this is what we do is like people who are, I don't know, it's just, I think it's probably everybody, but it's like you focus on things that aren't going well. And then you just like loop, 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 loop until, I don't know, you just end up in a rabbit hole again. <laughs> There's no, I mean, Lauren might know the better name for it, but I, you know, I know working with people just from a peer to peer standpoint, back to what Lauren was talking about, about what we needed for survival is that belonging and being around groups, you know, similar type of thing. We focus a lot on the negative because it allows us to stay hyper vigilant to the threats that are around us. Right. And so there's a rewiring that has to take place in an active practice type of way so that our brain doesn't default to negativity all the time right and it, and it, and and we're we're the few animals on the on the planet i think the only animals on the planet that have the ability to work on you know using the cognitive part of our brain to be like yeah that's helpful for you know evolution but it's not helpful for enjoying my life <laughs> so how do i find the balance there right and how do i work on that so yeah, I was listening to someone having a really interesting conversation about uh, ADHD and like the evolutionary aspect of your attention being everywhere. And it was talking about how like for so long, we had to be aware of all of our surroundings. So it actually made sense for us to be paying attention to multiple different things at once and to be fidgety and looking around and keeping our body primed to move in different directions. Whereas, you know, in the last couple hundred years, we've become more sedentary. And maybe what the issue is we're seeing is like some bodies are not adapting at the same speed as other bodies. Maybe with this, because so much of what we're talking about right now has to do with what your brain is choosing to focus on. And the choosing word is used kind of lightly, right? Because it's an automatic process that we can start to influence, but Let's say that your, your brain's automatic response is to focus on the negative. And other people maybe don't have that as strong anymore because evolutionarily they've, they've recognized that, okay, focusing on the negative doesn't actually help me live an enjoyable life. So we're going to skew to the positive now. But maybe these, these people who are experiencing, you know, um, like what you described okay, I had a bad experience on a plane once. Now there's this negative that's going on and that's all I'm going to focus on because I want to stay safe and alive. 
I'm going to keep that memory forefront and let it fester so that I know that this is a dangerous situation and I should avoid it in the future if I want to stay alive. So maybe it's the same kind of thing where their brain has not adapted to our new way of living. Cause let's face it. It is a new way of living. This is not normal for what our history is as like hunter gatherers and nomadic people. It is not well, normal. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, and then, and then, you know, it's not normal. And then you take what happened like when social media came out, I know, you know, the, no. anytime people talk about social media and mental health, the the first topic of conversation goes comparisons and I don't look like that and people use filters. And I think there's there's certainly a lot that contributes in that area. But I think the bigger thing is what social media does to our somatic nervous system and all the things we see here, touch, taste, you know, like I rewind back to like the 90s when AOL, you know, was was dial up internet and you were like, wow, if you had two emails from the day before, like you've got mail and like, you know, that was literally the, you know, I'm not saying that to kind of get a rise like that was literally the tagline you've got mail because it was a big deal if you've had mail, right? Whereas now if you went into your email after a day and you didn't have mail, you'd be like, what the hell's wrong, right? I've like people forgotten that I exist. So we're checking emails, we're checking push notifications we're checking direct messages right we're checking text messages like so our brain is constantly on 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 so with lauren with you're talking about like okay we some of us adjust from being hunter gatherers to then you know the this new world that's quicker now a, a new world that's even quicker than that when social media starts coming out and then you take the aspect that you're talking about where some people the underlying adhd of being in a lot of different places well Maybe it was adaptive for some people to have their brain be able to go to many different places to multitask and do it all at once. But when you are artificially giving them a lot of things to focus on, now it's almost overwhelming way too much. And now even something that worked to your advantage, you're, you're, you're kind of a victim of the fact that these, you know, uh, technology producers created something that's like looking at a, at a slot machine, right? Like we're constantly checking on it and can't stab looking at all the, all the cliches about dopamine hits and all that stuff. But it's just, I, I think we're so early into it and it's changing so quickly that as much as we try to catch up, then something changes in the way that we live our lives because technology is changing so fast. So I almost think like, the answer is to take this 30,000 foot view and take a step back and be like, our brains were not meant to be on fire all the time. And whether you're wired to be more ADHD or not, whether you're wired, you know, to, to be calmer or not, like at the end of the day, if a brain is constantly working, we're using all the energy that's in our system through the food we eat and the air that we breathe that the mitochondria makes in our cell, we're using it up here which leaves nothing left at the end of the day when we go to sleep at night for rest and digest when we go to sleep when we're in REM sleep. So we have to figure out a way to explain to people that regardless of how technology changes, we have to figure out times in the day to allow this to just relax and be power washed. And, and I and like building those skill sets into people's routines. It's, it's no easy task because, you know, who the hell likes doing work? And we've, we built a society where it's like, where's the pill that's going to fix me so that I don't have to do that work, you know? And that's, you know, that's what I talk about with respect to, to medication for mental health a lot is, 
like for in my experience, like I've walked into the hospital and doctor's office and said, I need help. And it's been like, here's a pill, go home. Right. And like therapy wasn't even discussed until like maybe the third or fourth pill that I was on. And, and it's like, I come from a, you know, heavy industry background and we talk a lot about root cause analysis and like what a pill does is it covers up the symptom. It does not fix the root. And so like basically, and, and like literally the last conversation I had with my doctor, she said to me, I want you to be on a pill stable for one year before I taper you off again. And it's like, well, if you're on an SSRI or something like that for a year, you ain't coming off ever. Like, I think that change like permanently changes your brain's chemistry. I don't have data on that. That's my, my hypothesis, but like, you know, like we're not solving the root issue and like therapy and like these deep trauma informed therapies, EMDR, IFS, like stuff like that. That's where you're actually getting in and fixing the root. Like whether that was the car turned right and jumped up on the curb, or it was like literally your parents had a divorce or someone got killed. Like it doesn't matter what it is. That's where you're actually fix. Well, healing the root instead of let's not use fix. No, and that's interesting too, right? Because I mean, I'm now thinking of an experience I had when I was younger. My mom and I were walking through like a wooded area um, near my house, and I looked to my left, and there was somebody dressed in all black walking alongside us in the woods. And it scared the living crap out of me as a kid, right? And I had no idea, like, my subconsciously knew what was going on, but I ran out of the forest, and now I live near a pathway that is surrounded it's wooded on one side and then on the other side it's like a little less so and then the road and i was talking to um my boyfriend about it and i said i don't understand why but whenever i go there by myself i get really anxious and like i looked at my data from my runs and like if i would run there my heart rate was more elevated than it was when i was running elsewhere and then they just like cut down all of the trees and I went for a run and I was like, holy sh- I feel so much better. And I'm thinking back on it going like, well, this makes so much sense. I was hyper vigilant the entire time that I would run there because I was terrified of some man jumping out of the woods. Like it makes a lot of sense. And it adds that load to us physiologically, but also mentally. And I think the scary part is, is when we don't notice it. Well, that's, you know, what you just described, and sorry if my uh, example of a car jumping on a curb made you think of the man in the black clothing. Um, no, you're good. <laughs> but, but like, you know, we, it's almost the opposite, not in like a contradictory way, but in a, another way from an evolution perspective, our brains try to handle things. We were talking about how when something happens, we focus on it, we focus on it, we focus on it, and we can't get it out of our head. There's another aspect of how our brains learn to cope when we're not taught better coping mechanisms, which is push it to the back and forget about it, right? And as athletes, the lines that I always make fun of when I when I when I talk to coaches and I do sessions is like the line that goes, forget the last play and move on to the next one, or you know, time heals all wounds, right? Those are bullshit lines that are thrown to us. But then when you hear them as a kid, what you do is your mind rationalize that and says, I just went through a really shitty thing on the field or off the field or whatever it was. If I forget about it, eventually it's going to go away. And what you're sharing there is that it doesn't go away. It, it, it builds in our subconscious and eventually it 
makes its way into our conscious mind, or if it doesn't, it's at least living somewhere in our body, you know, with tension and pain and whatever else it is. And, and we actually have to work it out of our system. Right. And, and so as you're talking, you reminded me of something, this is just going to be like really dorky comment, but you know, I went to these sleepaway camps when I was younger and there was like the story of this guy who like was a camp counselor and died once. And his name was Cropsy. Right. And like, he he lived in the woods on the way down to the waterfront area, right? And so as a young kid, you're like looking around every time you're walking through that area, going down to the where the lake is, like, holy shit, this guy's gonna jump out of the woods. And and but like hearing that term now, I probably haven't thought about that guy's name in forever, but I could already tell the way that my like my shoulders kind of like go up when I say <laughs> it that it's in there. Cause as a young kid, you can't differentiate that. It sounds real. And then, and then it sticks with you. And as you get older, you're like, oh, that's not something I need to work on because it's a ridiculous thing. Well, it's not ridiculous. If, if to your point about what you noticed when you were running through that wooded area, you become hypervigilant and your, and your, you know, vital signs will show the changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Just the, like people, like when I walked into therapy, the first time they asked me about my childhood and they said, like, do you have trauma? And I was like, no, like you know, but, but then the more deep you get, you're like, holy shit, like almost everything is trauma. If you like just had a different lens on what actually happened, or you just perceived it in a certain way. And like, you're five years old. So you really don't understand perception that well. And yeah, it's incredibly insightful. And yeah, if you don't think you have trauma, go to therapy. I was just going to say, I was going to say like the doctor's question should be, are you a human being? (laughs) and then like if you answer yes it's like they don't need to ask the question of do you have trauma they just know (laughs) and i look i don't think like any of our parents you know were like given the manual on how to be the perfect parent and even if they like i i remember hearing i don't know if it was like you know if it was Brene brown or you know one of like the gurus in the space was saying how they they met a woman who was told when she was younger how beautiful she was by her parents all the time. You're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. And she went to her friend's house often, and her friends, their parents would put the report card up on the refrigerator all the time. Got an A, you got, you know, got a B plus, whatever. And so because this one young girl was told she was beautiful all the time, she grew up believing she wasn't smart and that her parents didn't think she was smart only because they, they complimented her look so much. Right. And so, you know, how do you like bringing anyone up, you know, you could, you could try to be the perfect, perfect parent for for that child. And, you know, the way the brain works until the brain is ready to express what it's feeling, which is really hard to happen until someone matures to a certain age, although it's nice to encourage kids to do it, your brain's going to start developing down this path where it's got these isms in it, right? And and so there's a perfect example of you could be doing all the right things. And, and, and that's even parenting. That's not even taking into consideration all the things that just happen in life that are just the way that life hands you those things and you just have to handle them as they come. Yeah, I don't... To be honest, I don't think it's possible. <laughs> and like, so I don't know. I don't know if you'll resonate with this, Eric, but for a long time, basically, maybe, I don't know, f- from 2010 until now, um, I very much felt like it would be irresponsible for me to bring a child into the world because I don't know what my purpose or the meaning of life is. 
And I felt like it's like, how can I irresponsibly do this if I can't even answer like a question like, like I'm not happy. So how can I, how can I do that? I don't know if that resonates. No, I, you know what? I think that's a very mature perspective. I'll tell you why, Rob, because I think that there's a lot of people and I, and I hope I'm not pointing fingers. I just, I think as a society, we need to consider this. And by the way, I'm all for procreation. So anyone who uh, thinks otherwise, you know, I'm not trying to say that, but timing of things is, is, is important. Right. And so a lot of what I hear from people, let's take kids out of it for a second, then we'll bring kids back in. Well, Eric, I, I'm not doing well, but if I just land that other job, that's my dream job, I'll be good. A job so doesn't I heard fit. that from a psychiatrist once, and he literally said to me, Rob, you'll feel better if you just move cities and get a new job. Wow. And it lasted about six months. <laughs> yep. It, it, it's, it, there's a temporary, and look, you know, like, I, I don't know that psychiatrist, obviously, and I don't know other psychiatrists personally who are making those recommendations. So hopefully this isn't a, a personal attack on any one doctor, but in fairness to those doctors, not so dissimilar to a general practitioner who does give you the pill and the pill quote unquote works for three months. Well, if Rob moved to a city and then the doctor doesn't hear from Rob anymore, because now Rob has a new doctor and Rob was fine for the six months that he first moved. The doctor thinks, oh, that's something that helps them, right? In it, in it. So, so the doctor who gives the patient the pill, oh, you know, I'm not hearing from them for three months. That pill must have worked or whatever it is. And, and then, you know, life is a series of cumulative events and our brains don't forget things as, as much as I struggle with my memory at times and it's scary as shit because of stuff. I've been through and the trauma I'm still working out. I recognize that somewhere in my body, those memories of what I've lived through exist in there, right? And and so they don't just go away. Getting our hands on the new, an actual toy like a new car, a boat, or a vacation, and in some cases, unfortunately, a child. And I and I've. I've had many people. Again, I'm I'm a peer to peer helper more than I am a you know a, someone with a with professional experience. But and I'm not married. And then even in not being married, I have um, you know married couples. You know who who one side of the couple will will call me and and say, you know I I think if we have a child, it's going to bring us closer together. We're having problems right now, and we're not seeing eye to But if we have a child, it's going and that scares me when I hear that. Again, it, it's unfair for me to tell someone. No, that's not the right path because when I haven't lived it before, but I would just say in a general sense, when we try to add things in as distraction mechanisms, because we think they're going to give us something that we weren't getting before, but we haven't worked on the underlying piece that's maybe preventing us from finding purpose, preventing us from feeling balanced, preventing us from feeling healthy. I don't think that that's the, the, the right formula, you know, so opinion, yeah. but, but I, I, I think there's evidence to back it up. Yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right. And it's like, I mean, there's like, there's value, obviously there's value to relationships. There's value to, you know, having, you know, like a dog, like gives love, you know, it gives you things to do during the day. Like these things, companionship, like there's tons of value to this, but it doesn't cure the underlying trauma it doesn't heal your underlying issues well you just you just brought up dogs 
Yeah. <laughs> you just brought up dogs, Rob, right? So you and I can relate in that aspect. My dog just turned six years old as I'm watching him, like, give me the evil eye that I'm not paying attention to him. <laughs> and um, so I was a dog different than a kid many ways, right? But but my understanding of what my dog does for me with my mental health, it's companionship, it's relationship, but it also is a piece of me giving me receiving, me doing work to take care of, right? That it, with all the respect for my dog, I don't know that like bringing a child into this world is the same as adopting a pet, right? With respect to like, if it's part of I'm giving something to that dog, that dog is giving something to me. And when I pet that dog, it's self-soothing. When I walk around with that dog, I feel a connection. Those are all great. But I also know that the dog is not going to solve my problems. It's a piece of the overall. And I also know that my life is having to give myself something to that dog. I think what you were sharing, hopefully I'm not, again, not digging myself into a hole here, is when we think bringing a child into this world is going to be the solve for what we're, you know, is ailing us, right? And it's going to all of a sudden give us purpose. Whereas that's why I'm saying I think your realization was very mature is like, until I'm a little bit, you know, more comfortable with myself and where I'm at and, and, and where I want to get to and where I want to be, I don't feel ready to bring that child into this world. That's a very mature uh, place to be, I believe. I love it. And, and I mean, we got to wrap up here. I, I think Eric, honestly, like we could have gone for five hours and I could still, <laughs> we could still chat, but, but Eric, if anyone is listening, they want to connect with you. They want to find more about the same here movement. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the same here, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Rob. So the, the same here movement was formed based on my own lived experience of being a professional sports executive and then having the crash that I had um, for two and a half years, just staring at a ceiling, just dysfunctional. Nothing on my brain was working. And, and a lot of the things that I came to the realization of that I shared earlier in the podcast of just trying to put a drug to it and make it better and then ultimately healing through breathing modalities and, and more natural practices, coming to the realization that the reason why mental health didn't speak to me, even though I had lived through these traumatic events, was the messages that were out in the marketplace. I think what we're doing as an organization, as a movement, is trying to provide an alternative to the way that society looks at this concept. In it, looking at it like it's all of us together on that continuum that you spoke about and that Lauren spoke about and that we're all moving up and down at different points in our lives. And that makes us all part of the same team. And so to illustrate that point, we've got a celebrity alliance, we've got athlete alliances, we've got doctor alliances, we've got all these different people who, you know, their message is same here also, this American Sign Language side of, I face challenges in my life, you face challenges in your life. If we all face challenges, we're all in this together. This is not of I have depression, you have bipolar. Sorry, we're on different teams. And so, um, you know, places to check us out are samehereglobal.org is our website. Our probably most active social channel, though it's two or three on on the on the follower list, but most active is Instagram. It's at samehere underscore global. Um, and so those are the two main places where we kind of hang out, uh, the website and the social channels. And then we just launched, you know, similar to what you're doing with the podcast, actually just got the, the, the first date, April 16th will be our first episode. I know you were asking last time we spoke. Um, so it's, uh, Theo Fleury, uh, the NHL player, a uh, former NHL great, I should say. And, um, and Darren Ravel, the sports business reporter, and then 
yeah, I guess I'm just, you know, the third guy is part of it. Um, but, but, uh, we're all going to be talking about mental health as it pertains to current events, right? Like we have shows all the time where people share stories and that's important, but we don't have any really where we take something that's happening in the news, in the media. And we say, how are we reacting as a society to that? How's our media reacting to that? How's our government reacting to that? How are we as a society uh, absorbing it and, and understanding it? And is it moving the conversation forward when these current events are happening? So the place to find that, those, those who kind of do Apple podcasts, getting the whole five-star rating and all that stuff, it's we're all a little crazy, crazy in quotes. So I don't want people to think I'm being literal with the sense. Um, and and it, it's true. Like we all live on this continuum that we fluctuate up and down on. There's no shame in going through it, whatever it is at whatever level. So hopefully you find uh, comfort in, in joining us in some way. I love that. And I'm definitely going to hit subscribe and check that one out. And And I mean, for us, everyone who's listening, first off, we really appreciate you listening. And I mean, I love this conversation. We're going to have to have you back on, Eric, because we only like scratch the surface here. Um, For us, yeah, hit the subscribe button, dismantling the high performance narrative on your favorite podcast platform. You can follow us also on LinkedIn, on YouTube, and on Instagram. If you want to check out our services, both Lauren and mine, you can go to highperformancenarrative.com and find all that stuff there. And if you have any questions about mental health performance or mindset, my dog is going crazy right now. <laughs> you can you can go to Apple, leave us a rating and review and drop your question in the podcast notes. This Eric, means you're loved, Rob. That's all it means. It, it means right. that you're... Well, well, actually, no, it means my girlfriend was loved because she just got home to take him to the vet because he has a oh, broken okay. tooth. So <laughs> I can't see the virtual background. So I, you should have taken the credit for it since I can't see it. <laughs> you, you can see him now. And and uh, yeah, Eric, I just want to say thanks for joining us again. And I will definitely have you back on. Awesome, buddy. Thanks so much. Really good seeing you and, and, and say hello to the dog again for me. <laughs> Thank you. And, and thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll Later, see you buddy. Next week.